0: This is Film Tank, Tank, Tank,
1: Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no now. Oh, I don't know if it's I like it. You know, we sit here like a couple of regular fellas. We're about to make film
0: history. Can you say that again? Just the way he said Poor baby is starting to
1: lose it. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it. everyone, and welcome in to episode two twenty one of our little podcast here called Film Tank. Alex Diekman with you as always. In reality, uh, another person who is always in with reality. Us. Wow. Well, I was I, tra- I was trying to think of any episode that has been done with Film Tank that I have not been a part well, of. Well, you know
0: what? Now I'm like determined to make that
1: happen. Okay.
0: I don't know how logistically it will happen, but I'm determined. It's possible. I feel like it would be like me and Tucson talking about anime or something.
1: I'm no problem not participating in that. That's so. what I mean. Not that you wouldn't do it, but you'd be like, Oh, I don't have to do it. Yeah, no, I I'll, I'll take a pass on that. That's fine. Rain check, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I feel like we've done two two or three anime episodes. We have.
0: Um one was at least pertinent to a upcoming block burst, blockbuster film. And an upcoming blockbuster. Blockbuster. Uh, one was part of our big thing, yeah. you know, our uh, where we force other people to watch other yeah. whatever. I don't remember what the third one was. We did Howl's Moving Castle. We did.
1: You chose that. I did. Yeah. So, so mostly, in all honesty, because I was intrigued by the uh american choices for the uh for the uh, dubbing yes yes
0: yeah, no miyazaki's uh disney led dub whatever you want to call uh, it are always very interesting
1: because that has christian bale and billy crystal right
0: yeah yep yeah. yeah. so. no i mean there are people across the entire filmography of those english dubs that are like oh okay there's andy Dick and
1: there's yeah, Tina Fey, Tim Daly, yeah, <laughs> and mean, it's just
0: very random.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, this episode. Oh, before I say that oh, about what we're talking about, please. Nick Cheney, oh, hello boom, there. Has been on almost every episode, and I don't mean it as pejorative because, Jesus. well, I tried. You just have to point it out, don't you? That was one episode. Literally one. One episode. And we in, call it a bonus episode. We call it a bonus episode, and it was at the very early stages of this little podcast yeah, you here. son
0: of a... Mm.
1: It was with a host that's not even
0: on the show anymore.
1: That's true. He's in the name,
0: but he's... he's <laughs> he is,
1: yeah. He's no longer with Have us. Have we ever
0: said that on the podcast? I don't believe so. Well, I'm going to give a little backdoor <laughs> peek right here. <laughs> well, you know, if, if you're... <laughs> hey. This is a children's show. Uh Film Tank was named that for obviously the phrase... Well, hello there. What's going on? <laughs> oh boy. Uh Film Tank was obviously uh named after like the phrase like think tank. However, it was more born out of a uh God, what's the right literary word? Maybe um oh god. Acronym. There we go. Oh, boy. I knew it started with
1: an A. See, I I was going to say that, but I thought you were thinking of something
0: different. No, no, no. I was thinking of the very basic one, (laughs) um, where TANK is an acronym of four of our first names when we still had four hosts, which in that case was Toussaint, Alex, Mm. Nick, (laughs) I had to think about that one. And Kenny. Uh, so that's where Tank came from. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, in case you didn't know that, that's why we named our little Fun podcast. little trivia that yeah. hopefully will make it to the IMDb page someday. Yeah, and you know what? Honestly, I hadn't even thought about it, but phonetically, I, I'm okay with just going down to Film Tan. <laughs> <laughs> but then Tucson can't be on anymore, so... Okay, then we'll <laughs> You know what? Film end. How about that one, Uh-oh. ladies and gentlemen?
1: It'll just be you. There'll be no microphones. <laughs> it's fine. I want to uh, thank
0: everyone for listening tonight. <laughs> uh, tonight we're going to talk about porn in the early 70s. <laughs> Where did they get its start? Well, on its
1: back. Anyway. Alex, why don't you introduce? Beautiful. <laughs> so, uh, myself and Nick uh, are not going to be talking about anime. We are going to be talking about a classic film from one of Nick's favorite directors. Uh, and that is the film, the seventh seal directed by Igmar Bergman. So Igmar Bergman has done numerous films. Uh, the one that you would remember if you uh, listen to this podcast and listen to all of our episodes is the film persona, which we did an episode on years ago. I believe I don't remember. It was a while ago. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, um, it's a, director that has always intrigued nick uh and he's kind of been i don't want to say you are like gushing to do an episode from a foreign filmmaker but you were wanting to do one and this seemed like a good time for that so uh we we chose this one it was kind of a collaborative effort on picking this film and um i will say of the Ones you threw out there because this is not my field. This is. I was slightly surprised out of the choices. And why is that? Um, because
0: ironically, I like. So I gave you a choice. Should I expose what the choices were? I mean, if you.
1: If you you want to do that, you totally can. Or you could just explain, like, what kind of films you picked. Either way is fine. I
0: genuinely picked
1: very different movies. So
0: that way you had a choice, at least based on the way I was trying to sell them, Mm -hmm. as to what you were feeling. Um, i was only surprised in the sense that um uh ingmar bergman in general but seven seal in particular is a very kind of blunt historical religious epic um in which while there is actually a light tone to it at times um i mean at times as far as somehow some some of the ways the characters interact with each other oh uh, yeah uh it's a very dark and whatnot film and we had done a film by him so i thought maybe there would be preconceived notions of like well i've already done that so i don't need to do that again type thing um whereas some of the other movies that i suggested which i can't even remember all of them but i was like this is a fun one to do for this or whatever and you chose one that's uh
1: definitely a uh a a heavy one well i two things a, I knew you really liked Mark Bergman. Yeah. Now, you talk about, talked about him frequently. I know you talked about him when referring to you and Sarah, that you both really enjoy his work. Yep. And I know you like really depressing films. Oh, yeah. So, it seemed like an appropriate choice <laughs> of the ones that you had given me uh, that it would probably give some good opinions on it so for sure uh, i i i guess i picked this one although you again gave me a a short list of things to think about so and the
0: reason i gave you a list was because i didn't want to be the person that was like let's do another bergman movie like i needed another person to sign off on it basically
1: so (laughs) luckily you did there you go so uh the seventh seal was released in 1957 so i mean we're talking that's what 63 years now about, yeah. So this is this Damn. is
0: yeah. It's
1: been around. It's
0: gonna have its own AARP card soon. <laughs> that,
1: was, that was a Jay Leno joke. That was really bad. Can we not talk anymore? Ow.
0: <laughs> I think I delivered it better than Jay because he would have said, "What do you think about this? Huh?
1: What do you think about that?" He also would have, man. I've. My parents loved Jay Leno for whatever reason, so... I'm sorry
0: about your childhood.
1: I was going to say, we watched a lot of Jay Leno when I was growing up. Um, that- you were a David Letterman household. Good for you. Yep. I'm proud of you. <laughs> um, that cameo in Ted 2, mm-hmm. oh boy. I don't even understand why he agreed to do that. <laughs> like It's not even really up his alley of
0: comedy, which makes it even more desperate of a ploy to be liked, and it's just really gross.
1: Yeah the scene was gross and him yeah there's yep. just, there was just no winning there nope and as someone who liked that film that was so like even some of the jokes that are already dated from that movie that came out four or five years ago were I I would still think are hilarious. Where even like watching it in the theater for the first time, I was like, "Ooh, pu."
0: No, that Jay Leno (laughs) joke was genuinely the type of Family Guy joke that wouldn't have actually made it to air. (laughs) Not because it'd be offensive, just because it was so bad and stupid that we're like, "Yeah, this is the kind of comedy we do," but that's not even up to the level of what we normally do. Yeah. Anyway,
1: yes. So, The Seventh Seal uh, again was released in 1957 and centers around a man. Uh, who seeks answers about life, death, and the existence of God as he plays chess against the Grim Reaper during the Black Plague. So the um, film has a lot of people. This is, um, even though it's from 60-plus years ago, um, this is definitely a film that would be more considered an ensemble cast as there's really no star of this. Although, um, for Americans... Um, The really only memorable person from here, other than people who may have heard of Ingmar Bergman, the director, um, and the writer, would just be Max von Sydow, who plays um, Antonius who is really just the person who is playing this chess game and is kind of in the background for a long time. One of thing I kind
0: of forgot about, because I actually have not seen this in, like, eight or nine years. It okay. was one of the very first foreign films I ever truly watched, like, of my own volition. Hmm. Like, like, reading lists and seeing, okay, these are classics, any, many, mighty mo. It was the first Bergman movie I ever watched. Okay. But anyway... Uh, One thing I had forgotten was that Max Fon set out is actually very not... Does not have a lot of lines for being, I would say, the de facto protagonist. I mean, it's his journey that matters
1: most. It is, but if... And I know that um, title cards didn't really matter like they do now, but he's like the fifth build person in the film. And it kind of fits. Like, yeah, he's important, but at the same time, he's in the background for a lot of the actual action that's happening in the film. So, but for americans uh he rose to prominence in terms of this generation um really in the early 2000s um as he was in my narrative report but also has been around in other things including a stint on game of thrones and also Mm -hmm. in that tom hanks movie incredibly or extremely loud and incredibly close uh and more recently uh he had a very um small but pretty good role uh, in Shutter Island, and also had a really bizarre cameo in Star Wars The Force Awakens, where he's basically cut down 30 seconds in by Kylo Ren, which actually is actually a pretty good scene.
0: I actually think he has the opening line of the entire trilogy.
1: Do not believe that is true.
0: Uh, Okay. It
1: could be. Who...
0: Is it him or Oscar Isaac that says this will start to change everything or something like that? He
1: says something like that, but I feel like that isn't the opening line, Uh-oh.
0: but maybe it could be. I feel like it's definitely the first line of like note. It like, could be. It could
1: be Stormtroopers shouting something. It could be, but nothing anyway. ever comes of his story. No, that's why it's so weird that if
0: you re... Well, we won't even get into that topic, but <laughs> yeah, now that we've seen the entire trilogy, boy, is that a weird place to start. Yep.
1: No, well, that's about right. So, other than uh, our friend Max, who appears uh, hey. and is kind of the main character, and we also have Gunnar Björstrand. Yeah, um, playing, another Bergman player. Yeah, uh, who is quite good in this. Uh, and then also, Biet uh, Ekjurt, um, playing Death. its literally what his name is in the film, uh, which is about right. But what's his first name? <laughs> and then Nils Poop, uh, playing Joff, uh, or Joseph. Uh, and then uh we have some other characters played by uh females including uh Inga Gill and then also B.B. Anderson who appears B. in the B. other in the in uh, other uh Bergman films including Persona. Mm-hmm. So, uh Nick, this is your bag and I will have commentary uh, throughout the episode, but definitely would like you to crack your knuckles and take the lead here. Thank you so much. Um, Settling in for a comedy
0: routine. (laughs) I was going to make a joke where I take the microphone off of the... But then I thought, I'm not that great with the microphone, so I didn't trust myself to be able to get it back on. (laughs) It's probably for the best. Oh, man. Uh, Here we are. We watched The Seven Seal. Both of us just watched it literally literally minutes ago. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, you know, this is definitely one of those movies that I think is basically the gold standard for introducing people to art house world cinema. Like I know Rashomon is probably more accessible, but this is the one where people I would say always start with when they want to be like challenged beyond uh, just a straightforward story and whatnot. And I think for good reason, because I think it's a fantastic movie. Um, And myself, when I was first really discovering the Criterion Collection, first I was slightly dipping my toes in the shallow end with American movies. And then when I started to really branch out, uh, The Seven Seal, knowing that it was, quote-unquote, the movie where a guy plays chess with death, I was like, okay, let's see what that is. And... um, Sure enough I ended up liking it, clearly, because then I started seeking out pretty much everything Bergman has done and um and it's so I haven't rewatched it since that initial first impression. And I gotta say, it's better than I even remembered mm. because I actually was slightly underwhelmed the first time I watched it, in the sense that I very much enjoyed it. Um but I was like, This is what people call a masterpiece, like whatever and
1: um, which is I feel like a super common thing for anyone starting with these kind of films. So that's the big thing. Is like nowadays, I'd be like, I like
0: nowadays, I hear what people say about any movie, and I'm just like, fuck that, like (laughs) you know, like whatever. And then I go not to say that I'm like solely, you know, like honed in on my craft or anything, but I definitely have come a long way from like only kind of hanging on what other people have said. It's a good way to start out. I'll say that.
1: I feel like if anyone, and this is kind of tough to say, but, like, if anyone, like, just knew nothing about Paul Thomas Anderson and just started off with Phantom Thread, they might be like, the fuck?
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. So,
1: I mean, seeing, A, what his progression is, but also the kind of filmmaker he's become, which I don't even really love his more recent works, but at the same time, like... You could have seven people watch that movie and have seven very different opinions about what was going on in it. So. Absolutely, and, and same same thing here with the seventh seat.
0: I was gonna say he had actually made around ten movies before he got to this movie, mm-hmm. so this is in no way a a young filmmaker's you know trying it out or whatever. Um, I kind of remarked to Alex, I'm like he had only really made one bona fide classic before this, which was called uh, Smiles of a Summer Night, which was a kind of romantic comedy, and it's really the only time he did an actual comedy, <laughs> um, and it's actually fantastic. Like, you wouldn't expect him to be good at it, but I feel like he just... and got it all out in one sitting uh, and he also kind of did it because he was losing money because he had been making his kind of depressing real life movies. So he made Smiles of a Summer Night. Yeah, one for you, one for me. Exactly. (laughs) And it's what launched basically the next and most uh, fertile point of his career where he started with The Seven Steel and went on to make in my opinion a dozen other classics. I I
1: feel like that's super common for any independent film. I mean I feel like only people, like, maybe, like, Tarantino are exempt from that. And even he is more of a mainstream-ish filmmaker. Oh, absolutely. But, yeah.
0: No, it's definitely more common than... Oh, yeah. And, you know, back then there was no Marvel. Like, you couldn't just, like, make it and be like, well, if you just give me a million dollars... Or billions of dollars to... A million dollars. Well, it's sad, but in this day and age, (laughs) it's like, not actually. I know. I know, Dr. Evil, whatever. (laughs) Um... But the, the sentiment stands as far as, like, that's all people have to do today, uh, weirdly enough, yep. uh, although they're starting to learn from that mistake slowly. Mm. Um, but The Seven Seal, <laughs> um, to me, I think is a fantastic film. It's very similar to a lot of other movies he'll make. He'll make another medieval epic in the movie called uh, The Virgin Spring, which is a rape revenge film mm. made only three years or so after i mean it's still pretty
1: um early for the course
0: of cinema to deal with that kind of topic and whatnot Mm. even this movie flirts with it um but then has a character intervene before that uh and not for (laughs) good effect so we'll talk about that obviously yeah he was no stranger to putting these topics on display or whatever um But I I think The seven Seal is fantastic. I think the performances are great. Um, Obviously, I'm drawn to Ingmar Bergman for everything that's on display in this movie. Even if it's not in my top five Bergman, um, this is all what he does best, which is coming up with these extremely provocative images, I think, uh, both cinematography-wise, but also thematic, you know. To see a guy wrestle and... Uh, l- literally have what he is thinking is confession actually be a uh, dialogue with death where he's giving himself over on accident, you know, and as he's struggling with his own uh, placement in the world and with his kind of emptiness when it comes to if God exists and
1: whatnot. That was my favorite shot of the whole film yeah. is uh, this idea of the divider between um, the priest and the confessioneer, whatever you call them. Um, And then that is basically turned into the idea of prison bars. Uh, When we go to the other side, uh, looking at uh, Max from death's point of view. It's a harsh, I think, indictment of religion in general. Because Mm.
0: (laughs) that, in and of itself, is not unlike what confession actually is.
1: Which is essentially... Looking at these... I mean, I will speak for priests, I guess. But the idea of um these people already being guilty yeah. and confessing their sins um is a really ugh.
0: and not only that but then to have to say it out loud and confess it that actually becomes a worse thing and not better like i would say organizations like the Catholic Church uh, pretend it is, you know, pretend like, well, if you say it out loud and you confess it, then you'll feel better and, Mm -hmm. you know, absolve you. No, if anything, um, you're then sharing it in an extremely vulnerable state where you're not completely in charge uh, of how your boundaries, I think, are being respected and how you're going to be perceived from another human being, because I
1: guess we're going to get into a little bit religious territory, but to me, that's
0: all another priest is.
1: (laughs) Well, but in that relationship sense, you know, the idea of... It's very submissive. Well, I was going to say, the idea of Something like a patient therapist or something like that is something that is supposed to be empowering in some way. Where you are learning about yourself and trying to speak through your issues and find out more about your own person and your journey and whatever. Where this is literally you're just handing over all of your issues to this person and they are telling you how... pretty much how much they are above you and here's what you should do to repent for your shit you've done.
0: And in this movie the metaphor becomes literal where it's also here's how I'll use it against you. Mm -hmm. You know I mean this is how I will keep you in line basically where they're talking about a chess game but obviously the chess game in and of itself is
1: non-literal at least in my reading of the movie and whatnot. um, Although it is a little weird on the opening beach scene where uh, they look like they've just gotten out of some terrible whether it's a battle during the Crusades or they just You know, literally, like, just fell down the mountain or whatever happened. Like, they clearly look like something bad has just happened when we arrive with our two characters that we meet at the opening scene of this film, and yet at the same time there's a perfectly still chessboard somehow just sitting oh, yeah. there with all the pieces on it. So, Oh, yeah, that metaphysical chess. <laughs> uh, well,
0: actually, I think there's a case to be made that uh, one reading could be that they were dead from the first frame on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that this is actually sure. not a... Um, this game. is all just
1: part of purgatory, or yes, something like that. And it's yeah. not
0: until and all they're doing is walking to the final, you mm-hmm. know, grim reaping, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that respect, I actually think that uh, Lars von Trier, who's clearly a Bergman fan, just oh, based, yeah. based on his the kind of movie he does. Mm-hmm. But his latest movie, I think, The House That Jack Built, he's I think paying homage, not necessarily uh, uh, image wise, but I mean that last segment of
1: The House That Jack Built. God, is God bless Lars von Trier. He. Yeah, he really tapped into something. I mean, I don't even love that film. yeah um, God, that that hunting scene that still gets me. That <laughs> yeah. is that is like the whoring bed scene for me. Love I gotta it. say, it is just the idea that it has red hat. He's got a red hat on. Is just oh man, Phew. whatever political <laughs> symbolism are you finding in that scene? Oh man, he's a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> That's sure oh, is I. That is one of the few times that I too sought laughed, when oh you did out, oh yep. yeah,,
0: mm. yeah, <laughs> oh boy,
1: um, but yeah, no,
0: um, this movie, uh I love that it does take breathers like if if it truly was, uh, and there are other Bergman movies that don't take breathers, like that is full throttle uh nihilism from every frame to every frame until it's over and you're like okay cool should i commit suicide now or should i wait to see if the sun comes up tomorrow so
1: sorry to interrupt a little bit no, here, no, no. but the uh, so the character who is uh max von Fancy- seat the Cytos- squire yeah no, yeah oh what, his whatever the guy he's with yeah the squire okay because he's a knight and then that's his squire okay yeah. which I, I just remember his yeah. title or name johns or, or whatever okay yep uh first of all that character is great he is and very nihilistic he he is which is fine because he fits perfectly for this film he is basically the narrator leading the audience through what this film is actually trying to say Mm -hmm. so i mean it's a little christopher nolan-y but not in the way of like explaining the plot more just here's what the director is probably thinking yeah but um oh my god uh the line from this film that stuck with me all the way is his line about um I, I think it was I don't remember the exact word for word, but it was something to the tune of Love is the blackest plague of all yep. or something like that. And holy shit, that is cutting deep. To yeah, no, <laughs> to say that
0: in a drama centered around the black plague, mm-hmm. uh Oh yeah, no, that is... uh, Especially because it's preceded by a very almost Seinfeld routine-esque of two guys going back and forth like, oh yeah, it's like Oh, you snore in your sleep. And, you, you know, and it's all this kind of almost petty thing that even it's kind of, I think Bergman being cheeky is like, oh, even in the medieval yeah, ages. There's even physical comedy happening. Yeah. There. Yep. And then it's just punctuated by, yeah, love is the blackest plague of all. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh. <laughs> and even credit to the crazy uh, Smith, mm-hmm. uh, even he's like, huh? what? well, I don't <laughs> know about that. <laughs> like, that's, that's your take, man. Um, but, yeah, no, I love that. Um, uh, the character of uh, John's uh, the squire, while I agree that like he's often at the forefront of kind of what's the context for a scene is, I don't necessarily think that the the movie is always on his side, so to speak. Okay, um, because at least for me, I, I do think Antonius's uh, wrestle with faith is far more in line with how the film is presenting uh, the ambiguity of Faith being listened to and Faith being, like, basically not listened to and the fine line between that. Because what I find ultimately tragic about the whole movie, and then I'll pass it off to you for some general thoughts, but is that one of the greatest ironies of this movie is that you have a character like Antonius Block who is so... Preoccupied with death and with religion that he is a religious person despite being an atheist. You know, you can't possibly basically slavishly, you know, devote your entire mental acumen to just thinking about this 24-7 if a part of you doesn't believe in in, in one sense or another. And not only that, but then he's also ignoring the greatest sign of all, which is that he is playing chess with fucking death. And I feel like that in and of itself is kind of the great metaphor for the human condition, which is that we are often basically facing something that is so above us and so beyond us. It might not be what we consider uh, God or what we think other people are describing God as or whatever, but all of us can admit that something like just death is unknowable and like unfathomable and whatnot and if something like that can exist and if we can't explain it then why is it any more different than someone who can't
1: explain god which is which there's a line of dialogue about that in the film uh when talking about Almost demeaning people who live their lives and then don't really think much about death, I believe it actually is in the uh the confessional scene is when that is that brought up about right where he's again almost demeaning disregarding people who live their lives and do not constantly think about death, which is oh boy is that is that's a really um ugly stance to take, because this idea that he is somehow better than people, because he spends most of his life thinking about death, is... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, and we see
0: it, too, in the ending. Um, Sorry, I keep kind of going off, but... In the ending, when death comes to them at literally at their doorstep, which I think is a nice touch. Like this is kind of a road movie in some ways, but also by the end of it's it, a road movie. well, I mean, like in the sense that they're not you know staying in one place and they're yeah, trying to they're get home, moving, yeah. but that the idea that when death does come, death knocks on your doorstep uh, is kind of a potent.
1: I had, I had, I don't want to say a different reading because oh, yeah. I really don't have a firm grasp on my feelings on almost any part of this film, to be honest with you. Nice. But at okay. the same time, I feel like if I'm going to go with the idea of this being purgatory yeah. and this being his journey, we arrive at his biggest failure in the final scene, which is, um, how he abandoned his household, uh, to go fight this war that he didn't even really care about.
0: Now yeah, Um, And I actually think you're absolutely right. I Mm -hmm. think that not only did he not care about, but we're kind of taught throughout the whole movie was uh, perpetrated by men who didn't believe what they were, (laughs) you know, preaching, like Mm -hmm. the priest that they come in contact with, uh, Ravel, who was going to first... Well, first steal from the dead and then rape the one woman that they kind of rescue.
1: Who says no dialogue throughout the entire film other than it is finished in the end, which is a...
0: Yes, she is a mute girl all the way up until that moment. So, yes, uh, yeah, there's a lot here. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, those are my general thoughts. So I am curious to see, just as your first impression, love it or hate it, what is, like, going through your head.
1: I thought this film was pretty good. Uh, Again... I would probably need to spend some more time to have a real solid grasp on this. And I don't know if I would think about this as much as I probably should. Um, So that probably takes something away. I will say, um, and it's been a while since we watched Persona. um, But just remembering back to my initial thoughts on that, because I have only seen that the one time. I feel like this is... Right at or just below how I felt about that. And I gave that a three and a half. Yeah. So I was a fan of it. I was yeah, a fan yeah. of this. So I thought this was quite good. Um, it says a short run time, but it also felt like it kept moving through. Like at no point during this entire film. And this is a big thing for me when watching a foreign film. Especially I was, from this era. Yeah. yeah. I, I was never at the point where I was not interested in what was going to come next. So I think that that's an and if it was a two and a half hour film, I maybe would have felt differently, but it has a pretty short runtime for you know our current era standards and it didn't feel overly long, even with its you know hour and thirty-five run minute runtime or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh that being said, I really for the most part enjoyed this and felt that this was unique and I think the biggest thing that is difficult for me to give a really firm grasp on what this was for me is that there's so much going on here and you could literally look at so many scenes in six or seven or 10 or 15 different ways. And that could affect how the next scene plays out. So there's so many ways to go with this film, uh, which I found intriguing and I was just kind of along for the ride the first time through. Uh, I, I thought the opening 15 to 20 minutes of this was pretty great. And then from there, uh, we turned into something totally different. And I was was very much on board for that. Because the biggest thing that I picked up on probably about 45 minutes into this film is that this film does something that I don't want to say is not in other films. But it is doing something, at least for me... That was pretty fascinating this idea that it is telling the story of these people who are unrelated to the black plague that is going on like our our main characters that we're following, which starts out with just two different groups of two and three, although the other group of gestures have a child with them but they converge and other people join in and it becomes a collection of people, was uh, seven or eight or however many they have at the end. And I will say for the era, it never goes out of its way to try to make sure the audience keeps up with like, oh, this is the group
0: we followed earlier. You know? Like I know it came by modern standards, mm-hmm. but that's kind of revolutionary back then to just – Completely abandon your main characters or your supposed main
1: characters to go observe the group that will meet up with. Uh, they converge like thirty-five minutes in, so eh. it's not totally unrelated. But yeah, from the era, I hear yeah. what you're saying. Uh, but I think it is pretty fascinating for me that there is everything going on with the Black Plague in the background, and our main characters who we're following throughout this in general, on face value, have nothing to do with the Black Plague other than viewing what people are saying about it. And yet, we are seeing... We are seeing the Black Plague for them... Um, I'm trying to find the right words. I'm having the same issue you're having, but we are are seeing it... Through their eyes? Yeah, we're seeing it present itself to them, even though for the first 50 to... 60 minutes of this film it is not presented that way in my opinion at least so this idea that they are just observers watching this happening as the audience is watching it happening and then we see the true images that are happening to them as they are like the whole film is them just well and remember they get a their first taste of it early on, and then actually
0: kind of dismiss it, mm-hmm. which is the guy that they think is still alive, and then yeah. it just turns
1: to be a rotted. Corpse. Do they think is still alive because because Antonio still believes he's alive yeah. because he is lied to by True. the squire.
0: True. It's, yeah, I was gonna say the squire has that nihilistic attitude, so he's yeah. just kind of like, oh yeah, whatever. But um, at
1: the same time, uh, we are seeing everything happening, and I'm sorry that I'm, the word is escaping me, the term that I'm looking for. No. But at the same time. Uh, It is pretty fantastic that we are watching everything progress around them and they are exempt from it. But then by the end of the film, we are just watching their story play out in their um, hysteria almost with the Black Plague and how it is, you know. And the other thing about this film that is so unique is who knows if any of this is actually happening Like, in my opinion, especially after the first scene of this film, it is super possible that all this was just made up in the mind of the gesture. Yeah, no. And he just Uh, dreamed this shit up. And it could just be the Virgin Mary and Jesus walking by earlier where he recounted this story. Also, too, this is really (laughs) random, but I had a hard time watching the gesture after the, like, second time I saw him in the film. Because, for whatever reason, my mind kept thinking that he looked just like... um, just, like, the uh, really bizarre guy from Airplane who keeps making, like, weird comments being like, this looks like an iron. I don't know. Oh, oh uh, uh, Joey or whatever
0: his name is. I don't was. remember his name. In but the the, movie.
1: The, the, the the crazy spaz guy? Uh, I don't know about crazy spaz guy, but he he always, I mean, he's clearly portrayed as this homosexual guy who works at the airline yeah, 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 and he's continuously making these random comments like did i leave the iron on or that yeah, looks yeah, like yeah. a beautiful big tylenol oh okay i yeah, don't know yeah, yeah. the the yeah. guy who plays the jester looks just like him and i was like man yeah, I guess that is that, that guy mm-hmm. and it, it's obviously not but at the same time like my no it is stupid <laughs> my stupid brain was just like it's him. Yeah. Um well when you told me that the
0: I think the guy Ravel uh looked like Fred Armisen, uh, I couldn't I couldn't see <laughs> it after that. Like it didn't cross my mind and then you said it and I'm like, well, that's exactly who that
1: is. It's just it's just his grandfather. Okay. So I'm a little scatterbrained on that so I apologize, yeah. but at the same time I feel like that's just the way my brain saw this film yeah. is that there's so much happening here and I feel like If you just watch this as a casual film viewer, like you may take it for face value and think that, oh, this is stupid or whatever, but there's so much going on in this film that could be interpreted in many different ways, uh, which I think really makes this film that much more interesting to me because I could easily see picking this up and watching it six years from now and having a totally different experience or reading than I'm having right now. So I think that's pretty awesome. And I think that this is just a really solid film from top to bottom with really nice performances. I don't think they're great, but at the same time, I think, I think they're good. Uh, and I think that this film has a lot to offer as you were saying about the comedic routines that are happening throughout. It's a lot of weird, bizarre body gestures that are happening throughout Mm. this that are very great, especially for this time period. How about that picnic scene? Yeah. <laughs> Which felt like that was a comedy routine that could, was, like, slightly
0: ahead of its time. Not mm-hmm. because there wasn't, like, body routines or whatever, but smack dab in the middle of an
1: existentialist movie like this. No, is... I felt like there was, like, weird, like, Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton type stuff yeah. happening. I mean, not, like, over the top, but yeah, at the no. same time, like, under the radar, just not fitting the bill for what this film is. And your comment about Lars von Trier is very apt is yep. because the the way that that film goes through, you, you cannot just make... I mean, I guess you could. You could make something like Antichrist, which I haven't seen but I've heard about. But <laughs> you could make a two-hour-long, just miserable, depressing fest if you want. But... In reality nobody wants to watch that so
0: actually it's funny you say that because i'm not a big fan of antichrist <laughs> for being a huge fan of large von trier uh it's definitely more things like the house that jack built where there's a bit of comedy in there not because it's like oh it makes it less depressing but because i actually just kind of roll my eyes if it's super dark because then i'm just like well but that's life not re-
1: is not like i this. was gonna say that's yeah. not reality yeah so. I mean, uh, something like um, *Nymphomaniac*, which obviously the first and second halves have different tones throughout them. But there are there's a lot of comedy throughout those films, yep. especially the first act. Yeah. Um, and you can't have life without this idea. Like, uh, I uh, mean, uh, darkness doesn't
0: yeah. mean anything if there's if you've never seen light. Okay, Bane. I don't. Sorry, I just just. <laughs> Uh, I, I started I saying
1: that. I, was I started
0: saying that out loud, and like, oh god, this is sounding like a platitude. But like, <laughs> I also didn't want to just like stop in the middle
1: of it. Oh, that was great. But yeah. So, uh, anyways, we can we can talk more just about general things yeah. now. But I, I, I was a fan. I thought this was really good. Actually, I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm on the fence of pretty good and really good but I'm just glad um, you enjoyed
0: your time watching no, it
1: I, I think I would say through two films and uh, I'm an Ingmar Berman fan even though I don't think he's my favorite or anything like that no, but I, I also am not turned off by his yeah. work so I'm 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 happy about that oh yeah um okay so something I do want to talk about mm-hmm. uh I think you're touching on something very
0: important when you were kind of talking about how the the two characters of uh, Antonius and John, the knight and squire and how it's, it's interesting. Let's take the movie literally for a second okay. and let's say that they were just in the crusades and then they came back and it's all real, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there is some merit to the idea that what's unique about their perspective is that they were just in war and now they come back to see their entire country decimated, so to speak, uh, by the black plague. Um, and what I find interesting about that is that to, to not witness the kind of ongoing effects of that um, until later on in the movie, at least. But to come into the middle of that is almost a similar leap of faith that you would have to have to believe in God because you come back and something like that is such a, like, tall tale thing. You know, like, oh, a sickness somehow infected everybody and, you know, just started wiping out... Because nothing had happened like that um, prior to, you know, the Black
1: Well, plague. Espe- especially talk about religion i mean yeah. obviously this film has a lot of that but this is like that this is like the greatest thing that could ever happen for religious people, oh, absolutely, it confirms all your worst fears. Absolutely, they become the guilty remnant. Yep. They can now peddle their shit and have people believe them. Absolutely,
0: and that's what I kind of love is that I love that these two guys who come back from it all and see it. Like it's not that I, they're not like non-believers or anything, but there's a disconnect there. Like sure. they can only hear about it and hear what happened in their you know myth, which is ironic because they just came from war which should be the, like, de facto, like, well, I was just in the actual, like, horror and whatnot.
1: Also... So to have that kind of taken away from in this time period, there were not guns. Like, you were hand-to-hand combat, killing all of your victims. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no. there's no
0: slow deaths and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I feel like the irony there, and part of the kind of God's, you know, like, tragic irony is that, you know... You know, that's one of the things that's so romanticized in both, especially in Western fiction, but I'm guessing throughout the world, is a soldier's homecoming. And mm. and the idea that when you come back, that what you just did is unfathomable. And so when you come back, not only are you coming back to safety, um, not to say that you won't have problems or anything like that, but you're coming back to a much safer place. And you're coming back to something that is way more rational and logical. And that's the opposite here. He he just came from something that is essentially extremely uh while it's irrational on a, you know <laughs> on a man by man uh you know, page because it's a stupid war, it is still rational because you can be like, Well human beings are stupid and they're and they're they're a fallacy and whatnot. But for him to come from that to a world in which, I mean, science it doesn't really exist so much that you can truly understand what a you know what the Black Plague is and whatnot, so it becomes this mystical force like that would i think shake anybody to it, to their core and whatnot um and once again that's it's it's kind of an indicative of his nature because some people have turned even more to religion and we see that in the sequence in which the uh, jesters are interrupted by the self flagellus and as they come through
1: yeah the that town is square. um that is probably the starkest moment of the film where it feels like that is taking over the scene, but it's also obviously taking over the film yeah. as it is just this four and a half minute presentation uh, that is led by this obnoxious um, pretty, town crier pretty yeah. much who's coming in to spout off bullshit to everybody. Yeah. And as we're talking about, people are just listening to it now because they are believing really anything they'll hear in this time of... Um, hysteria, almost it's, that's happening. It's a great example of something we're living in to this day, which is how
0: science can be co opted for religious persecution. You know, these things that you don't quite understand, because no human being can understand every single thing. You know, um, are somehow the forces at you know at, that be are at work to essentially.
1: Yeah, but people it, not. All of them, but people like that priest or whatever you want to call him in that scene are more, in our current day, look like somebody like Jim Baker or somebody like that who's just this crazy person who is, people are like,
0: nope. Oh, I agree. Um, but as we see in the movie and I think as we see in real life, there will always
1: be some people that follow it.
0: And and that's what's kind of creepy about unfor-
1: it. I mean, look at where fucking America is, right? I mean, yeah. Not gonna compare everybody to Jim Baker right now. But at the same time uh <laughs> Fuck you,
0: Jim Baker. <laughs> well, uh
1: it's Yep. People people will listen to what they believe in, whatever that is. Yep. Yeah. So
0: Well and um one theme I do wanna to touch on is the way that this movie grapples with the fact that almost all art is infused with grappling with mortality you know
1: that scene with the painter is so good
0: it is and obviously it foreshadows the self-flagellist because he's the first one to bring them up and he's mm-hmm. like and it's funny because the night to the knights, that's almost like a new concept to them because they're like this what and then he's like well yeah well while well, this has been happening some people have gone so extreme that they've started to do this
1: and then we'll see later on in the movie that that's very true and perhaps i just missed it but i don't think i did Uh, I do really like the idea that they just arrive at there and it's just like a normal place. And then when they leave, there are witches outside that are being prepped for burning and all this shit. Like it feels like a different world when they leave that guy's house, you know, 40 minutes later. Yeah. No,
0: it's a surreal scene in which Mm -hmm. they kind of approach it because it's almost like a ghost town. And then, yeah, no, you're right in that. And I do think this movie plays with time and space. Mm -hmm. Uh, the opening quote and then the ending quote cuz it's repeated kind of basically says that the great silence opened time and space for a half an hour and so to just so you're already in the mindset that um these kind of things are very subject to the reality in which they're experiencing and not so much a logical reality. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, no, that's another horrific scene, though, uh, when they leave the painter's uh, place. Oh, and, and the uh, the woman is just screaming, pretty much? Yeah, and what's yeah. great is that... Uh, <laughs> not great. <laughs> but what's uh, very weirdly modern is that the, uh, the guard or whatever they're talking to is very nonchalantly not even a religious zealot. He's just like, Yeah, she's a woman and she said and or and she had sex with the devil. Um which, you know, obviously there's a whole host of things there, whether it's the treatment of mentally ill or just the uh just you know, put down and,
1: It didn't matter at that time. No, yeah. Anyone who said anything who was a female yep. was immediately thought of I mean, Joan of Arc
0: the I mean, extreme example of someone yeah. who was just like, oh, I, I talked to at, God.
1: Look at... I mean, we talked about the Catholic Church earlier, but look at the... whatever the name of it is, the Witch's Hammer or whatever that shit, where they went through and read off all of these things that would happen, and it basically said, all of these people are guilty. Yep. Find these people. And it was like, bullshit. Oh, yep. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, I was just, I was going to go on a different direction, Do so it. if you had some more... Nope. Um, I was obviously we need to talk more just about the literal, what you're seeing on screen between uh, Antonius and um, death. Okay. Um, but one particular part I want to start at uh, in is the dialogue that is happening in the scene we've referenced earlier, which is the confessional scene, um, and that was one of the moments in the film where I was catching on to something that I just personally thought of and may or may not be, um, and it's the idea that um, death is God himself, and... You know, it, yeah. to what everyone's belief. But uh, some of the lines of dialogue and some of the really small gestures on the face of death, I was just like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. He's pulled the hood over everybody and just, y'all playing my game. <laughs> so There is an absolute shit-eating grin
0: on yeah. uh, that actor's face that is very much like... Um, you can call me whatever name you want to. I do what I do, and it, whatever you do doesn't make a difference in for my plans, which is God's M.O., yeah. according to but, Scripture. But, but I,
1: in that particular scene, at least, and it really never comes up again throughout the entire film that I remember, but in that particular scene, I love the idea yeah. that it yeah. is God who is Plain death in this situation because the idea of Antonius going through all the shit about how, oh, God will never show his face. He'll never do this. He would never come out down here. He would never do anything whatever And this guy just sitting there being like...
0: Yep. You say it never comes up again, however, uh, yep. one thing that could add to that mm-hmm. is the idea, so if um, the character of Joff, uh, who's the male jester, mm-hmm. uh, married to Mia and with their son Mikhail, mm-hmm. Uh but Joff, so if he has a vision of the Virgin Mary and Jesus, mm-hmm. the only other vision he has is of Death, which, if we think of him as God, mm-hmm. is even more in line with what he can see, which I find very interesting. It's a very,
1: very good reading.
0: Yeah. So, um, no, I'm completely with you. I, I agree that it's never more explicit than that scene in the confessional. But I definitely think it hangs over the entire picture yeah. of the way he, uh, especially Antonius, carries himself and doesn't realize that he keeps setting himself up to fail by underestimating. I would say the kind of uh, the position he's in, so to speak.
1: I do like the idea, and um, in, in this is kind of goes away, because the chess game becomes somewhat inconsequential as the film goes on. Oh, for
0: sure. but and I think that's p-
1: part of the point. I know, but, but yeah. at the same time, just literally, it is, it is less about that and more about uh, the actions that are happening on the screen, which is obviously totally fine. But at the same time, um, the idea of this going back and forth, I do feel like it does go back and forth like an actual chess game or whatever um, where you do feel like this person has the upper hand now but then it swings backwards when when expected to at least in this film so uh, i did appreciate that but yeah the relationship between the two of them um, is is one of the better parts of the film to me just because that is what this film is selling in the early part of it, and then we see the rest of the film play out. Um, and I think that the movie does a actually very good job about showing the audience that this is always happening in the background, and yep. then we're letting the rest of this play out, but having it linger just enough to always be able to not creep out of your mind that this is always what we are following through here, no matter what scene we're looking at, whether it's the horrible shaming scene that's happening, which does really feel ahead of its time um, with the gesture being mm. forced to do the, it almost felt like a bore on the bore floor. Of the floor. Like yeah. I was going to say that, yeah. but yeah. from 60 plus years ago, yeah, um, which is, I mean, that's, But that's foreign cinema right there for you in a nutshell where they are doing all these revolutionary things and Americans are like, we don't want to see Edgar Wright doing a Marvel film. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. uh, But, yeah, they're just really – interesting and fascinating that all of this is driving every action of this film but if you went back and looked at look at it like the actual conversations and actions that are happening between Death and Antonius are probably only like seven minutes of this movie. Oh yeah. No, and I, I love the idea too,
0: the more you watch the movie, the more you think, or at least for me, the more I get the impression that we're not seeing every interaction between oh. the two of them, you know. Like I
1: hadn't even considered that, to be honest with you. Yeah,
0: and not in like a coy way of like, oh God, I, you know, I really want to fill in the blanks or anything like that. But, it, like you said, it, it lingers in the background to the point where the inconsequentialness of the chess game really does become apparent after about a half hour, which is not to say that every time death shows up you're like, "Oh, this fucking guy again <laughs> um, but you start to realize that all death is doing is entertaining him, and he's not actually you know playing a game anymore and and I think it's, it all stems back from the very first uh, moment that they have together, which is that he comes to collect him, and it's antonius who is like, "Oh." Uh, um, let's let's play chess you like chess and so the death is like sure bud whatever you I, say
1: I do love the, uh, the scene and just the visual look of him saying oh knock the pieces over he's like I remember how <laughs> <Yeah>. these were <laughs> and I like how it's not like magical
0: realism or anything like that he's just being an asshole he's like no nope, I know each and every square <laughs> <laughs> oh um, man uh, one thing I also love is that I love the geography of this movie. Um, I feel like some people would maybe cite this as, like, low budget or something like that. But I actually think there's purpose in the idea that we're introduced to Death and Antonius, you know, writing that first scene uh, on that beach, right? And... So many times, they seem to go off into towns and into the forest or whatever, and yet they still then, almost every other scene, punctuated by them on the cliffside, and it seems like they're never truly getting away from the outskirts of this civilization, and I think that's kind of a pointed, almost surreal uh, commentary on how they're not traveling as far as they want to be. Yeah,
1: they're pretty much just going through the same landscape back and forth. I mean... In all honesty, Rashomon and Kurosawa. The more I've thought about this film, is pretty apt for what this is. Just this constant journey inward yeah. um, that is happening, and like you were just literally explo- like saying that literally happening in this film. Like they're just going in circles for the most part, yep. going through the same landscapes or this idea of going through the forest, like. Okay, but it's it's just this journey that really is going nowhere other yeah. than where it's always going to lead.
0: Yeah. Um and then the final image takes place on the cliff cuz
1: it's the dance of death. Uh
0: so I before we get into like final ratings and such, oh I, I was going to actually
1: oh, me- mention something else it's right there
0: something about um rational oh
1: no i was actually going to mention something about the cinematography because you were talking about when we very first started the film that this was kind of early on doing things cinematography wise that were i don't want to i don't think you said revolutionary but it was definitely doing something that people were not doing until 20, 30 years down the road. Yeah.
0: It's kind of like what's common for today as like how to truly, I would say poetically mix establishing shots with, you know, action shots, which, uh, without relying on overly heavy reverse, uh, whatnot, it, it's like they had already arrived in almost every other country except America,
1: one of the things uh especially regarding the cinematography and other effects that were used in this film, and obviously on not a lot of money that was used to make this film, although it is really beautiful yeah. um, the idea of the exposure of light and just the, like the aperture of the film i mean it's such a simple thing to do and one of those things like you learn about in a really like simple film class or whatever but the idea of you need to know the rules before you can break them which is just this film doing just things that are just like why would you overexpose light here but obviously it plays into the story and also plays into what the perception would be for the viewer of what's going on in this scene where you could play this up as there is some holy thing happening in this scene in a really simple way but at the same time, that could also be a red herring for what's actually going on. Um, so there was a lot of really simple things used throughout this film that I think played into the narrative really well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think the final thing I want to talk about uh, yeah. before we get into like final ratings is sure. just what
0: you th- and I but thought of the finale, basically. The whole, uh, uh, I guess I would consider the finale be them ascending into his home, meeting the wife, and then death coming for them.
1: Uh, if I can yeah. just go since he, you were kind of broaching the question. Um, I like to think that, that what I mentioned earlier is pretty much what's happening in that scene um, where they have arrived at this this goal of where they are going. Um, and I love the idea that this is just the failures of his life being shown to him, which is why he's going to hell. <laughs> um It's kind of a nihilistic, negative look on it, but I feel like that's what this film is going for. (laughs) Yep. Um, And I could easily see myself viewing this film once or twice more and having a different look on it because I think there's a lot to take away from what this entire film shows and especially that final scene. Um, But just on a first pass, especially with the way the wife is standing in front of the fire. Yeah, it's very kind of... Instead of real, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then um just the shot of Death walking through the door, the mute um girl noticing it mm. at first, and then all of the heads turning around, which was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and then just the slow showing of everyone appearing in the frame, and then it we know what happens there. Oh, what yeah. you know, however it goes or whatever. Um but I feel like it is the failure of his life that he a abandoned his household and also brought down other people with him. So yeah, that's pretty much my reading from it. And you know, I I think it's not super, you know, super um, confirmed or anything no, like that. But, but uh, that was just my initial thoughts, and I'm I think I'm pretty pretty stuck behind that.
0: Oh, yeah. What I love about what you just said is that that's never been my reading of it, and yet I have a few things I would say in favor of it now that you said it, which mm-hmm. is something that's actually interesting about that is that I made a comment while we were watching it uh, to you, because you're not overly familiar with Bergman, mm-hmm. that when uh, the character played by B.B. Anderson mentioned that they have Wild Strawberries, I was like, oh, that's the name of a future Bergman yeah. movie. And Wild Strawberries, fantastic movie, not that I'm biased, uh, is about a professor who is in his old age, you know, probably close to death, who essentially goes through a very dreamlike sequence of events as he walks through his past memories and failures and relationships and whatnot. So I almost feel like, while that's not my reading of this movie, uh, clearly that's a preoccupation with Bergman himself, and I think it's funny because I never kind of thought about the ending as that way because that almost seems like a little mini capsule, A, to have the title right there for you, mm-hmm. and then B, to have that kind of ending kind of, I think, certainly be grounded in that idea um, where a person is reconciling with their past. He'll just go on to do it feature length uh, yeah. you know, in another movie. My personal uh, reckoning with that finale, I absolutely love it. Um, obviously there's the imagery of the, uh, the dance of death where of them on the cliff side, which a, I love that it's on the cliff side because once again, that's the final shot, so to speak.
1: Also too, the jesters awaken almost in like relief uh, before <laughs> yeah. that, which is, well, yeah. it's
0: one of those weird things where it's like for a movie in which death is a, you know, a known quantity and, and like, you can't escape it. But you, Somehow they're able to. You know, like they they do the exact thing that they say they're going to do, which is basically while Antonius uh, plays chess. And that also. Although
1: although they are running away from it. So.
0: Well, they are. Um, But I do think there's some weird nobility there in his actions when he's playing that final move. Because I think at that point, Antonius knows that he will lose, essentially. And that's the first time where he'll admit it to himself internally. But. To play it, at least he'll play his part so that other people can, you know, live beyond him and whatnot. Um, in, in this case, being the family. Um, but I absolutely love the whole scene that takes place in Antonius' castle. Mm-hmm. When, um, he meets his wife. And what I love is that. His wife is mentioned, I think, one time in the entire movie before that point. So I I know the first time I was watching, I was never thinking that for sure but that's where they were going or anything like that. So when he does show up to his estate and he sees her, I was kind of not like shocked, but I was like, oh, okay. You know, like, and for her to still be alive because she was hanging on, it's what's interesting about that I is I do that, also
1: love that they do not recognize each other, which is great.
0: Yeah, it, it's a weird. Uh, uh, Image for them to stand in front of them after so many years, and literally, she has gone through the same thing he has. You know, he went through war, but she went through the Black Plague, and and that's kind of equal
1: footing. And here. the idea of however many years, eight or seven or yeah. however many it's been, and not knowing if he's returning, yep. and yet being devoted to him in some way. I mean, yeah.
0: And I think what's profound about that scene is when he arrives there and she's still there. I don't think he expected that. I'm Mm. pretty sure he pretty much expected her to be either dead or to just not be there. And what that means, at least to me, is that she was able to make a leap of faith that he would never be able to. You know, he went there to check, but I don't think he believed. And for her to kinda almost laugh it off and kinda be like you know, like, yeah, I stayed here and while everybody died. Like this is just look what I brought, I've got AIDS. And that's the (laughs) ultimate (laughs) tragedy of the whole thing. And while I do think there's merit to the idea that maybe none of this is happening, maybe this is purgatory, I do kind of accept the ending for myself as being the Black Plague essentially descended upon these characters that are all gathered. Not in an actual (laughs) ceremonious that yeah, like it's a spooky little black fog that, you know, whatever, but that's (laughs) the symbolism of what's happening is that they are all succumbing while the family uh, luckily got away. But whatever is happening, um, I personally get slightly choked up at the image of death finally appearing Uh, in their hall, their dining room. And everyone's seeing him. And being silent because they talk about the great silence throughout. And Mm. the only ever time you ever hear true silence like that is when Ravel dies uh, in the forest, when Mm. he's asking everybody to take pity on him and to cure him. And that's the first time the soundtrack is dead silent after he dies while they're all staring at that. Mm-hmm. And so for them to have to reckon with the same exact kind of treatment, so to speak, uh, as death stares at them, with, I would say, even the framing of everybody turning to look, uh, is just an extremely haunting image um, that I abso- absolutely love. So, yeah. Uh,
1: do you want to go into final yeah. ratings? Yeah, I, I will go first. Um I am a fan of this and I don't really love this either. Uh, but I thought this was actually very good and I as I say with a lot of films would be interested in rewatching this sometime down the road. Um just knowing what my rating was for Persona uh and again that was years ago so I I need to rewatch that to really compare them really well. Um but I feel like this is just below that for for me. So I would give this a 3 out of 5 at least in the first viewing, is I think this is a very good film. This is not my bag, really. Um, But I thought this was really well done and very thought-provoking. So I'm right between a three and a three and a half. So... I I've actually never done this, but I'm going to go ahead and give it a three and a half. Actually, now that I just I just talked myself into
0: Whoa, it. Whoa, we it was, just had a split second
1: change. I know. I I had already announced my rating notes and I'm going to change it because. Well, sometimes I, speaking it out loud. I know, and that's yeah, that. That's a really great thing about this little podcast we do here. Is even though I don't have wild changes like Toussaint does, um, where I go from two stars to six. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh I I thought this was actually very good and I enjoyed a lot that happened through this film. I thought a lot of it was thought-provoking and at the same time this was an enjoyable watch and it was well done. And um we've talked about this many times before and I know this is from a different era, but I admire films that can put as much thought into a shorter package than someone, even though he makes fantastic films and he's my favorite director, but Martin Scorsese, who is making a three-hour film every time he's putting a picture out there, which is basically him saying, I need to show all of this to get my point across. Yeah. So. Oh, that's the
0: big thing that I'll agree with you in the sense that, like, if you're not making an epic, mm -hmm. you can trim it. (laughs) Like, there's no reason that anything has to be over a certain whatever.
1: Yeah. So. I'm a fan, uh, and I I will go with a three and a half out of five, and this is right in the same ballpark as Persona for me, uh, and I'm I'm you know, I'm an Inkbar Bergman fan, and I'm not a person who's going to go out and buy every one of the Criterion's and watch them. And... Oh, there are movies you would hate. Oh, sure, it. yeah, Shh. and I don't
0: mean that as whatever. Like I'm making sure I show you the ones that I think you would like, not to like like cherry Sway pick, yeah. but just so that way you're not gonna have like. Like I'm, I, There are movies that I know you just wouldn't like, so why would I show you them? Yeah, to...
1: which is good because you know me. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, three and a half out of five for me. This is, this is a film that is worthwhile, and I definitely think this is a cinephile-type film. Um, I feel like, just like my mother, who uh, refused to see 1917 after I told her it was good, and she's still, uh, for whatever reason... <gasps> really? She uh, does not take my trust you no at (laughs) all she's not trust me she is still going back to birdman from five years ago saying that i told and that's
0: funny because they're both one shot uh it is. But, I mean, but just that, irony-wise. But that
1: is the perpetrator yeah. in this case, because I told her, not even I didn't even say, like, you have to go see this. Yeah. I said, this was a really good movie, and I really enjoyed it. And she went to see it with my father and uh, my brother, and she's like, that was stupid. I didn't get it. And I was like, okay. So so now you unfortunately burned her once. And- so it's funny, though. So here's the funny thing about this and, and whatever, but I found it hilarious that i said she should go see 1979 i recommended it to her totally opposite from Birdman. i think any white person over the age of
0: 60 (laughs) i'm sorry but i i'm not being like
1: pejorative i
0: just i do think that's kind of the audience movies like demographic anyway
1: so i said these are all the reasons why i think you'll like it and whatever (laughs) so So she called me out of the blue after I just sent her a text. And I was like, (laughs) I think you guys would like this. She's like, so what what do you like about it? I'm like, I thought it was a good movie. Like, it's a war movie. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, uh, she texts me two days later. And she says, we didn't go see it. We went to go see Uncut Gems instead. I was like, what? All right. They thought it was great. Oh, did they really? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's fine. Well that's pretty great. It's a good movie. Yeah, no. But that, at the same time. I was, I was not was, expecting that. I was just flabbergasted by that because Oh yeah. No. I
0: anybody like my own parents, I would tell them to go see nineteen seventeen before uncut gems. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a that's a, a fantastic story. I'm glad I, I'm glad I know that.
1: <laughs> uh yeah. So three and F out of five for me for the Seventh Seal. Moving on to Nicholas. Hell yeah. Well, I gotta say you've inspired me
0: to raise my rating because ah. uh, I was in between two ratings and I'm going to go with the higher one, which for me is four and a half out of five. I, it's not my favorite Bergman movie I've ever seen, but rewatching it did cement why this is pretty much my favorite foreign filmmaker of all time uh, and probably my favorite filmmaker if not tied with PTA. I mean, I think they do think differently enough that it's hard to say. Which one I prefer, but um I think this is a phenomenal film. I think it definitely is a grower in that Oh, okay. Um, yep. Mm-hmm. Like rewatching it kinda of cemented mm-hmm. it for me. Like I like I had said earlier, like I was slightly underwhelmed when I was first going on my Odyssey of watching um not to say that I didn't like it, but I was kinda of like, Oh. Um but one thing I actually kinda of do love and especially upon rewatching it, is that it my faith in it was slightly founded in the sense that I I stand by the fact that I actually think that this is more accessible than it would appear from the outside to show someone who really wants to get into world art house cinema. Like, while it is weird and dense and heavy and whatnot, it has a structure that is very uh, visionette heavy, where you're kind of seeing a bunch of different scenes play out, where each scene kind of has its own thesis statement um, that certainly all plug into a greater whole. Um, But I think that there's value in the idea that um, this isn't a straightforward, you know, let's follow the protagonist, go on a hero's journey. This is, let's watch a guy basically walk in on the most horrible or maybe sometimes comedic uh, set pieces and see how it affects him as he's been trying to wrestle with his own things. And I think that um, ultimately that's like a worthwhile structure. And I think it does actually lend itself to being a good primer to start watching things that are outside of a cinephile's comfort zone if they've never truly gone out in this branch, you know? Like, it's funny that I showed you Persona before this because I would normally choose this as the first one, but because our uh, guest of honor, Sarah, was in town and she wanted to do that, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, and I like it even more than this, Um we were like, well, we
1: got to do it. So I feel like, and I've only seen these two, so I am not um, a person who should be speaking on it. Eh. But I feel like Persona would get a more, a more reaction out of somebody other than this. Oh,
0: absolutely. And yeah. I feel like the love it or the hate it would mm-hmm. be stronger in both yep. directions because it is much more... Uh, I don't want to say weird, but surreal, and, yep. like, you have to do the work. I think The Seven Seal is
1: certainly... Now, really yeah. quickly, uh, as someone who is a, a Bergman aficionado like yourself, or oh. you aspire to be at least... <laughs> <Me>? <laughs> um I have seen 20 of his movies. Okay, that is... A I lot. think I think you're in... Yep, I think you're There's right there. There's actually, like, 30-something, and I'm trying to get up there, but uh, anyway. So, uh, I will ask this question, then. <laughs> And maybe there isn't a perfect answer to this, but do you think that The Seven Seal or Persona is a better um, film to explain him as a filmmaker? Okay, so that's, a, 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 let's say a better yeah. representation of him as a filmmaker. That's a good
0: question. I would say The Seven Seal. Okay. While I think Persona is the apex of his filmmaking abilities, mm-hmm. um, I also feel like that what makes that special is that he only was able to do what he did in Persona 1. It was like lightning in a bottle. Um, but I think the Seven Seal is slightly more emblematic of what he normally does, what he does at his best, what he does even at his worst, <laughs> and and so on and so forth. Um, and I think it's slightly more accessible. But uh, Persona is definitely the one in which is, I would say, not necessarily an outlier, because it certainly... Shares a lot of themes that he would do. But it's definitely the one where you watch it. And it's it's not not about a lot of his most prevalent themes. It's not really about religion. It's not really about even, like, I would say, uh, romantic and domestic love. It is more of a metaphysical, like, straight to the heart of the human condition in ways that are just... A lot more, I don't know, hmm. crazy than he normally does, basically. Uh, and it's only 80 minutes long, so it's, it's pretty great. But, no, I think The Seven Seal is slightly more emblematic of what
1: he was known for and okay. what he was able to achieve throughout his entire career. This is super off-topic, but I'm yes. just thinking about it as uh, I brought up Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. What do you think is the best film to represent him as a filmmaker Oh,
0: made? Um... I think probably, gun to my head, <laughs> don't shoot me. Uh, <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> got really dark. Um, <laughs> no, uh, did it? <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> um, I think for Baltimore Anderson, it's probably going to be Boogie Nights. Yeah that's – I feel like the more movies he makes, the more I might actually switch to something else. I was going to say – Because if uh, he keeps going in the direction he's yeah. going, he's going to have more movies in that vein I i
1: I, 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 find, I feel like, um, to me at least, and I'm not the the fan of his as you are. I've seen all his films, but I'm not nearly as big of a fan of yeah. his as you are. Um, even though this is my favorite film of his, so I guess I'm a biased, but I feel like There Will Be Blood is for sure the best film in terms of describing... That's what, probably true. ...what what he's done of his early era and what he's become. Actually, that is actually a really good blend of what that is.
0: I will switch my
1: answer and say that's probably true. Okay.
0: Uh, I always kind of... My weird relationship with There Will Be Blood is that Paul Thomas Anderson is, if you know my favorite filmmaker, tied with Bergman... And yet There Will Be Blood is not even in my top three of his movies because it just is not my kind of thing. I mean, do I love it? Yeah.
1: But um It's just really it's just not up my alley. boring oil western that's literally that that's it is oh, literally he that. has a lot of things to say about religion, but yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. No, and so I absolutely love that movie. Mm-hmm.
1: However, I mm-hmm. do
0: not have the same relationship with that film than I would say everybody else does who watches his movies. Yep. So I always kind of forget about that. But I am with you in that now that you just said that. Actually, I would probably say that movie. Yeah. Because it has that kind of historical sweeping epic, which... Doesn't always pervade his movies, but certainly does a lot of the times. Mm. And then also does the kind of character study that he's known for. Without getting too obtuse like you will later on in like The Master and Phantom Thread.
1: But I feel like that was the start yeah. of his of his, I mean, almost like I don't want to say Kill Bill was, but like Inglorious Bastards was the start of that Tar- Tarantino oh, yeah. obsession with Absolutely. that type of storytelling.
0: Yeah, no, it was um, like the new era, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And like yeah, no, I'd agree. Okay,
1: cool. So, Sorry for that sidebar. No, we'll no, no, no. Continue on. Jeez,
0: we're talking about my faves. I was
1: going to say, I don't think you're like, oh, this is awful. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, no, my
0: final rating is four and a half out of five. And I say that as someone who loves Ingmar Bergman, and also this movie is not even in my top five of his movies. So,
1: I'm a little biased. Mm-hmm. right on. So, uh, if you out there, uh, mostly just Sarah, have any thoughts... <laughs> You're being called out, Sarah. Yeah, pretty much.
0: No, literally, if she doesn't listen to this episode, I'm not standing up at her wedding like I told her <laughs> to.
1: So we're going to see if that happens. <laughs> I would like to hear and, and and have you or someone read what her thoughts are on this film, because I'm sure she is a huge fan of it. But um, if this... anyone other than Sarah out there has any thoughts on seven seal, always feel free to uh, find us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at filmtankshow at gmail.com.
0: I lied earlier when I said that this was the first time I wa- rewatched it since the first time I watched it. Okay. Uh, Sarah and I actually both rewatched it. Okay. The very first time I ever met her in real life. Oh. Uh, and we we were watching a lot of movies, mm-hmm. but this was one of them and I kind of don't remember it due to alcohol. But now I'm putting the pieces together, and
1: that, that, that happened.
0: <laughs> yes, yes.
1: Well, we we'd love to hear from you, Sarah, about this film, and and anyone else you know wants to interject either is also fine. Uh, you can also find our episodes on FilmTankShow.com, or also on Apple Podcasts, or on Stitcher, or on oh, I always forget. Always Spotify. Spotify. It, yeah. I All the places know. that we're on. That's not really website. a great podcast
0: place. Nah.
1: It's there. But. It's 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 available, so put it that way. You can find our episodes on those places. Coming up on our next episode, our friend Sam Shamara will be joining us again as uh, she randomly she sometimes she's definitely into this kind of horror genre for sure. I remember she randomly really wanted to do that really huge bomb Helen Mirren film called I think it was called Winchester oh, yeah. a couple I would years have ago that. I know I mean, you looked good but, but we she said she really wanted to do the episode and I was like oh okay and then it was never brought up again so we never did an episode on I've never seen it and uh, I don't think many other people have either even I haven't <laughs> so anyways she suggested doing uh the remake of The Invisible Man which is coming out uh in theaters this week uh directed by Lee Winnell. And I have to be honest, that is what drove me to be interested to do an episode on it. Uh, As I wouldn't say I loved, but I thought his last film, Upgrade, was really underrated. Yeah. Uh, And I know we were one of the few people who saw that in the theater. And I remember walking on, we both kind of had the same reaction of like, well, that was pretty good. Yeah. So uh looking forward to whatever this is going to be. Uh just from watching the trailer, it definitely feels like he has put his influence on this. Um and I feel like some people may watch this and not know that that's coming and be like, oh there are those kind of things happening yeah. here. Um but I think that will only make this a better film. So I am very much looking forward to uh talking about it. and it's got Elizabeth Moss who Other than that weird movie we saw at Sundance, um, she's usually pretty great in everything (laughs) she does. So looking forward to that coming up on episode one, or sorry, 222. So as always, Nick, thank you very much for being here. You are so welcome. And um, from Nick and myself, Alex Diekman, as always for our listeners, thank you very much for joining us here on Film Tank. Look forward to catching up with you next time.